Talking benefits. 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 Talking. Talking. Talking benefits. You're listening to Talking Benefits, the podcast brought to you by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. Every month, we dive into retirement, healthcare, hot topics and trends, and whatever else the benefits industry throws at us. I'm Justin Held. I'm Julie Stick. I'm Ann Patterson. Let's talk benefits. For the past several years, the International Foundation has strategically focused on the topic of financial wellness and how employers can provide financial education to their workers. We're also interested in exploring the impact of financial education and literacy skills on Black, Indigenous, and people of color. I'm privileged to welcome to our podcast, Dr. Olivia Mitchell, who is the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans Professor of Business Economics and Public Policy, and Insurance and Risk Management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. She is also Executive Director of the Pension Research Council. Recently, Dr. Mitchell co-authored a research paper published by the Pension Research Council and the TIAA Institute called Financial Wellbeing Among Black and Hispanic Women. In their research, the authors analyzed data from the 2018 wave of the National Financial Capability Study, a nationwide survey of approximately 27,000 U.S. adults. They focused specifically on the financial capability and well-being of Black, Hispanic, and white women. Their research showed Black and Hispanic women are more likely than white women to face economic challenges that negatively impact financial well-being. Differences were seen in educational attainment, family structure, employment, and financial literacy, and these factors contribute to disparities in financial well-being. So welcome, Olivia. Thank you for being here with us. It's my very great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So I'm going to start. Our first question is about uh, what I alluded to in the intro, and I'm wondering if you could comment on the factors that you found that negatively impacted Black and Hispanic women's financial well-being, things like income and education. Absolutely. I think before I do that, I'm just going to clarify what we meant in our analysis by financial well-being because it's a fundamentally subjective measure expressing how comfortable people feel about their financial situations. So to measure this, what we did was adopt the Consumer Financial Protection Board's definition. And what they claim it is, is it's a quote, state of being wherein people can fully meet their current and ongoing financial obligations can feel secure in their financial future and are able to make choices that allow enjoyment of life. So what we're really getting at is how people feel about their financial situations, um, rather than focusing on objective measures such as how much debt you have or um, et cetera. It's mm -hmm. a measure of how people feel about their financial skills and situations. Now, just to be clear, we also added some other measures of things like whether people felt stressed, whether they felt financially anxious, 
and indebtedness and so forth. But one of the interesting conclusions that we found and somewhat unexpected is that financial well-being scores were quite close for black, Hispanic and white women. Yet the factors that contributed to these similar outcomes were not the same. And specifically earning a perfect score on our financial literacy questions was strongly positively related to greater financial well-being for whites and Hispanics. But for black women, it was negative. Interestingly, all three groups of women reported being offered financial education at roughly similar rates. Um, and conditional on having been offered financial education, about three quarters of each group participated. Nevertheless, there were very different financial literacy scores among the three groups. So we also showed that for white women, unemployment was negatively associated with financial well-being, but it was not significant for Blacks or Hispanic women. Now, one possible explanation for that could be that holding down a job has less of a positive effect on Black women and Hispanic women's financial well-being, because even when they're working, they tend to earn lower pay and have less access to employer-sponsored benefits, including healthcare and paid time off. We also showed that family structure has rather remarkable different impacts on women by race, race and ethnicity. For example, Black and Hispanic women were much more likely to have financially dependent children under the age of 18. Yet they did not report this as being associated with lower well being. By contrast, though white women did have fewer financially dependent children when they did have them, the children were associated with a larger negative impact on mother's well being. Now, we speculated in our report that this might be because some parents will limit their own consumption in order to provide for their children's education. While in other cultures, parents may expect that children will provide for them in retirement. So this negative association between financially dependent children and financial well-being for white women suggests that this group is more heavily influenced by the first pathway. The lack of a significant correlation between financially dependent children and financial well-being for Black and Hispanic women suggests they may tend to be more influenced by the second pathway. You mentioned that uh, the second pathway was expecting that perhaps their dependent children later would take care of them in retirement. So that was what that you're thinking that was more of a an impact for the black and Hispanic women than the white women, correct? It's one possible explanation that we offered in the paper. Yep. Okay. Okay. Now, have you done um, any more recent research about how the pandemic has influenced these factors? No, this study, as you said at the outset, was based on NFCF data collected before COVID. Um, we do know from other data sources, of course, that Black and Hispanic women have experienced higher unemployment, have um, you know, not necessarily done very well during the pandemic. The same is true for white women, but to a somewhat lesser extent. 
So my projection would be that the financial well-being measures will probably decline next time they're picked up in 2020 slash 2021. Okay, that makes sense. So your research found that Black and Hispanic women were less likely to own a retirement account. And what uh, was the assumption that their lower income jobs didn't provide access to a retirement plan? That's certainly a very likely outcome. That is, lower wage jobs are more um, unlikely to provide all sorts of employee benefits and retirement plans are among them. We also noted that Black and Hispanic women are less likely to have assets across the board, including owning, owning their own homes. So for example, only 35% of Black women and 41% of Hispanic women own their homes and 57% of white women own their homes. And if you compare retirement account coverage, only 48% of Blacks and 52% of Hispanic women had retirement accounts, whereas 68% of white women did. Now, this could be the result of many factors. As we said, um, having uh, lower paying jobs, including lower benefits, Black and Hispanic women are also more likely to be unmarried parents, which makes saving and home ownership more difficult. So those were some of the possibilities that we explored. Okay, okay. Now, um, also your research found that Black and Hispanic women were more likely than white women to take loans from their retirement accounts if they had them. And they were more likely to poorly manage credit cards by making only the minimum payment, for example, or being charged a late payment fee or being charged an over the limit fee or even paying for a cash advance. Am I correct in assuming that part of this certainly is a need for cash, but could part of this be the lack of financial literacy? Well, absolutely. We certainly do find that Black and Hispanic women were more likely than white women to have student loan debt. They were more likely to engage in costly borrowing behavior and more likely to borrow from their retirement accounts. Um, so for example, they were more likely to have checking account overdrafts and unpaid medical bills and to, to take withdrawals from their plans. Similar differences also showed up regarding their use of alternative financial services, such as taking auto title loans, payday loans, using pawn shops, and rent to own stores. So among white women, only about a quarter reported having used at least one of these alternative financial services in the past five years, versus 48% of Black women and 37% of Hispanic women. And moreover, all groups of women who had engaged in these costly borrowing behaviors turned out to have significantly lower financial well-being scores than those who did not. So part of the explanation may be lack of cash, but I agree another big component is likely to be low levels of financial literacy. Now, um, the paper mentioned that you asked the women to answer the, quote, big three, unquote, questions uh, that are indicative of financial literacy. And these involve questions about inflation, interest compounding, and risk diversification. Now, you found that 21% of white women got all three of those questions right, 
but conversely, only 13% of Hispanic women and 9% of Black women did. And can you tell us more about that? Well, this is uh, quite concerning because in our view, people who are financially literate, who can answer these three very simple basic questions, tend to plan more for retirement, they budget better, they save more. It's, it's associated with a whole host of better financial behaviors. Now, one of the things that we found, particularly for women, is that women are much more likely to say, I don't know. Whereas men, by contrast, either give an answer yes or no, and they're very confident when they're wrong, but they still are much more likely to be confident. But women are unable to even hazard an informed guess. And this response I think is attributable in part to women lacking confidence about their financial knowledge. In fact, just over half of black, Hispanic and white women in our sample responded, don't know, to the question about risk diversification, indicating most of them simply lack confidence. Now, one positive twist on this could be that awareness of people's lack of knowledge could spur the women to participate in financial education programs to acquire the knowledge that they need. And so in that, this sense, we believe women are more likely to reach out and ask for education and information than men. Well, that's interesting. I suppose if you, you've asked them something and they really don't know, you're right. They might then try to figure out, I, I should know this. Maybe I should know this and I should try to find the answer. Interesting. Well, indeed, if, if you allow don't know as one of the possible answers, a lot of women, as I said, about half choose don't know. If you eliminate the don't know answer from the possible set of answers, women are more like, you know, they pick an answer. Mm -hmm. So what this shows is they probably have a clue, but they're just not confident enough to take a position. And so that's the teachability component that I referred to. Right. Very interesting. Okay. Now, uh, here at the International Foundation, we've worked to educate our members about the importance of providing financial education to workers. Uh, so I found it interesting that among the individuals that you studied, only about a quarter of them had received financial education, and you had kind of remarked on that at the beginning. And you also said that when um, they did have access to it, they, a lot of them participated in it, about three quarters of them. Now, I, I noticed in the, the paper, it said that most received this education in high school or in college, but only about one quarter of them were offered education in the workplace. So what can you recommend to our listeners who are employers and plan sponsors about offering financial education overall, and then education that will be more effective for underrepresented women? This is a very, very important question. So far in the US, the little financial education that has been offered uh, broadly has been offered in high school typically. And so um, what we can find is that if you look at young adults and you ask them what state they lived in when they went to high school, what you learn is the young adults that lived in states that mandated financial education in high school are also more likely to be financially savvy, 
they plan, they budget, they do all the kinds of things that you would expect. So at one level, what I'd like to see is more um, mandatory uh, financial education in high school. But the problem is high school kids don't have much money. So mm -hmm. the other issue is that uh, ideally you can help prepare them better to make some consequential financial decisions that they may face soon, like taking out student loans to go to college. That can be a very important factor. But clearly employers can benefit not only their employees, but themselves by providing financial education in the workplace because then their employees will be less likely to be financially stressed, to have credit card companies and medical bill uh, folks call them up and hassle them to get their payments. And all those anxieties and stress reduces productivity. So I think this is really a win-win situation. Now, in terms of the, the survey that we did, the Black and Hispanic women tended to be offered education with the same probability, but they were much shorter courses than for the white women. And what we know is that, you know, just a few hours doesn't fill all the gaps. So longer and more rigorous financial education programs are more likely to do a better job. Okay. Well, and, and we've, one of the things that we've looked at here is, and I know it's complicated for employers to provide customized education. It's easier to do one, one just send the same thing to everyone, but we know that one size doesn't fit all. And so I would um, I, I think that maybe having more customized education might be useful for um, underrepresented women. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So we have to think about the kinds of financial problems that different groups of women face. So for example, a financial education curriculum can inform participants about the costs of these alternative financial services or credit cards. But I believe it will succeed better if it acknowledges the specific constraints facing the audience. For example, Black and Hispanic women might lack access to low cost borrowing. And so part of the question is how to open up some of those access points. And then of course, as I mentioned earlier, even when black and Hispanic women are working, they may have less access to employer sponsored benefits, including healthcare coverage, retirement plans, paid time off, et cetera. So that can also be quite a boon. Okay, well, what about, um... You know, one of the things that I've been reading about in, in the whole area of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion is how, how a person who's underrepresented might relate to someone who's white or someone more who looks like them. Do you think that that might be more helpful if the, the person who's educating them looks like them? Quite possibly. I mean, what we know from the educational literature, that, which I've read, um, is that it really does help to have role models who are, shall we say, from, this, from a similar background mm -hmm. as the individuals themselves. It doesn't have to be exclusive, but sometimes, for example, um, people, employers have shown videos of people like them is to say, you know, I started participating in my retirement plan as soon as I started my job, and golly, I'm in much better shape now than I would have been otherwise. Mm -hmm. And I've heard a lot of stories like that that suggest that there's a lot of mentoring that needs to be done in this field. 
Right. And kind of peer testimonials. If, Absolutely. If some, they may not trust their boss or their, the manager or something, but they grow to trust their peers. And if their peers can talk to them about, I've had success doing this, I know that can be a, a helpful for them as well. It is very important to have that. Of course, on the other hand, I'm always a little bit uh, leery because I don't want to take on a fiduciary obligation to the individual that works at the company next to me. And um, so I think part of the effort has to be to um, teach the coworkers how to respond when those questions come up. You know, Mm -hmm. what should I invest in? Should it be a target day fund or, you know, Bitcoin? These are... (laughs) Tricky question, as we know. Yes, most definitely. So, um, okay, the impact of financial education may be limited if a woman's wage is not high enough to meet all of her financial needs. And you had mentioned that earlier. So other than financial education, what else can employers offer by way of benefits to help? I think, you know, a lot of the issues have to do with um, just-in-time work. So, for example, when you're just starting out, I think if you can possibly save for retirement, that's a good thing. People also, as COVID has uh, made clear, people also need to have an emergency account, a rainy day account, um, to be able to get through some of these very shocking um, income uh, surprises that we've experienced. Uh, but then if people, you know, I, I, it's a little delicate because the, the HR office may find out that someone's getting married and therefore has a chance, uh, a, a change in dependency status, but you don't necessarily want to spread the news around in case people want to keep it private. On the other hand, that's a wonderful opportunity to start talking about life insurance and even before that disability insurance, which I think you know, Americans are very underinsured for disability purposes. Mm -hmm. So um, some people have pointed to certain uh, events during the life cycle that Mm -hmm. can spur thinking around the types of things that we need to take into account. Mm -hmm. I taught a course for the first time last semester on uh, consumer financial decision-making to Mm -hmm. undergraduates that had no preparation. They didn't know what a mean and the standard deviation was, they didn't know anything. And by the end of the course, I did get them to think about estate planning and writing a will and a living will. And I said, if not for you, you know, help your parents out because you're going to be dealing with this someday soon. So I think they took it to heart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. This has been really helpful. Do you have any other final remarks or comments that you want to share with us? I just uh, believe that the kinds of programs that employers need to put in place, as well as the high schools for that matter and colleges, need to recognize that the world has become such a more complex financial environment compared to when our parents were growing up. You know, in the old days, you'd go down, if you had a penny to save, you'd go down to the bank and maybe you give them your passbook and that was that. And now we're facing all these apps and different kinds of uh, investment choices. And it's just a much, much more complicated world. So I've 
somewhat facetiously suggested that maybe what we need is like a financial driver's license. You need to pass a test to be able to invest in this economy because it's just become ever more complicated and the mistakes can be ever more dangerous. It is very complicated and, and uh, we've done some work on behavioral decision-making and the more choices people have, the more overwhelmed they are. So yeah, we, it's good to have choices, but it's hard to know everything and it is easy to feel overwhelmed and lack confidence in, in knowing that you're making the right decisions. And when you lack confidence, you tend to just postpone making the decision. And then here you are 60 years later, whoops, I forgot to save for retirement. Not a good outcome. Not a good outcome at all. Not at all. Well, thank you so much for being here with us, Olivia. This has been really, really helpful. So on behalf of my co-hosts, Justin Heldon and Patterson, thank you all for listening. We'll be back in your podcast feeds next month. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. And subscribe to the show in your podcast app so that our episodes will automatically appear on your mobile device. Talking Benefits is a production of the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, the largest educational association for those working in the benefits industry. If you're into benefits, check out all that the International Foundation has to offer at ifebp.org. Our show is hosted by Julie Stick, Ann Patterson, and me, Justin Held. Produced by Rose Pleva and Stacey Van Alstyne and edited by Amanda Gilsmer. Today's program is copyrighted in 2021 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. All rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel.